I'm going to be reading from uh, Wilbur Pickering's translation of Revelation 17, verses 7 through 18. So the angel said to me, Why are you impressed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast having the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go into perdition. And those who dwell upon the earth will be amazed, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and will be present. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not come yet. And whenever he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not, he is also the eighth. Yet he is of the seven, and he is going into perdition. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These are of one mind and give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Then he says to me, The waters that you saw where the whore sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, also the beast, these will hate the whore and will lay her waste and strip her and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Because God put it into their hearts to perform his purpose, even to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Now the woman whom you saw is the great city that holds rulership over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We know that we are to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. You've called us to not only understand it, but to embrace it, to live it out. And I pray by your spirit that you would enable us to do so. Uh, we continue to worship you as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Gary North has written a fascinating book called Conspiracy, A Biblical View. And it's a super interesting book on the history of the theories of conspiracy, both the bogus ones and the legitimate ones, as well as the conspiracies themselves, how they worked, how they failed and uh, what the Bible has to say about them. And it's really not what you might uh, expect. Uh, unlike most conspiracy books, this one is not pessimistic in the least. It is absolutely convinced that all conspiracies of the humanists must fail. Of its own weight, it must fail, and only Christ's kingdom will ultimately succeed. Uh, unlike most uh, uh, conspiracy theory books, this one has a great theology, and uh, it starts with Psalm 2, which really gives us the ultimate theory of conspiracies. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing, or as some translate it, the people conspire a vain thing? Well, let me just uh, read a, a short little section uh, from this book. He says, the biblical view of conspiracy neither overestimates the power of conspiracies nor underestimates it. There is one conspiracy, Satan's, and ultimately it must fail. Satan's supernatural conspiracy is the conspiracy. All other visible conspiracies are merely outworkings of this supernatural conspiracy. This is the testimony of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 
The Bible's account of the Tower of Babel records one unsuccessful effort of the conspiracy, and it ended in the defeat of the conspirators. The cross of Calvary is the ultimate example, satanically successful on the surface, but it led within three days to the definitive defeat in principle of Satan and his host. Christ's resurrection definitively smashed in principle the satanic conspiracy. History since Calvary is simply the outworking of that definitive victory. The one overarching conspiracy is therefore in principle disunited. He that is not with me is against me, Jesus said, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Well, this chapter is going to demonstrate how conspirators turn against one another and why it is that they are not invincible. And if you can come away from this message having learned three things, I will consider myself to be successful. First, if you realize that demons, even though they are powerful, are not, they've got limits to their power to conspire. They are not as all-powerful as many of the conspiracy books make them out to be. Some, some of those books, you just get so depressed, you want to throw your hands up. Second, humans frequently mess up on their conspiracies too, and it's frequently because of the competition between their sin natures. There's other reasons for their mess-ups, but there is a competition uh, between their sin natures. And then third, God is sovereign over even conspiracies. Uh, they cannot do a thing unless he permits it. In fact, verse 17 goes further in saying, these conspiracies actually fulfill his will. I mean, it's really an astounding verse when you think about it. Verse 17 says, Because God put it into their hearts to perform his purpose, even to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God should be fulfilled. So that is saying that these conspirators who think they are being successful in their fight against Christ are actually fulfilling Christ's will all that time. So let's dive into the passage, and uh, I do want to give a little bit of a review of uh, verses 7 through 8, which we have looked at in the past. So the angel said to me, why are you impressed? So we saw last time that the angel did not want John being impressed with the powerful uh, conspiracy of the international bankers, the secret societies, the power of Rome. Uh, he said uh, that these things should not impress you, they should not depress you. Okay, God is in control. Next he says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast. We saw that the woman was clearly identified on many levels as being the political leadership of Jerusalem with a specific focus upon the Sadducees who were the international bankers. We looked at the internal clues that completely ruled out every other theory. But we previously saw three facts that John clearly outlines about the beast. So there's the woman, there's the beast, and I want to review those three facts. The first fact is that the beast came up out of the abyss. Chapter 11, verse 7 was the first time we encountered this, where it clearly says the beast was a demon who came up out of the abyss. Verse 8 of our chapter is going to remind us of that again. It says it's about to come up out of the abyss. So why was a fallen angel called a beast? We saw that there are different orders of angels, and in chapter 4, there are some really weird-looking 
creatures, it's called living creatures in the New King James, it's called beasts in the, in the King James, but they're good angels, incredibly powerful angels, and I believe that this beast was one of those fallen uh, good beasts. He rebelled along with Lucifer, and uh, we spent a long time looking at the nature and the work, uh, what are these beasts about. The second thing that we saw is that the emperors that this demon possessed took on the bestial character of the demon. They took on his name. The last three emperors that he possessed were Nero, Vespasian, and Titus, all of whose names add up to 666. In fact, we saw that Titus's name adds up to 666 in Latin, Greek, and in Hebrew. And um, these emperors, when they were possessed, uh, began to take on absolutely hideous characteristics and actions and in public I cannot tell you the actions that they took on but just as a hint uh, Nero loved to dress up in wild animal skins uh, when he would uh, bite and rape and torture people and uh, his contemporaries spoke of him as the beast they they would have known okay the emperor is the beast for example his contemporary Apollonius of Tiana called him a beast who was worse than any wild beast. The Sibylline oracles called him the great beast. Lactantius speaks of him as a noxious wild beast. Three authors, authors call him the monster or a monster. So when Nero was possessed by this demon, he instantly took on some of the, 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 the demonic uh, bestial characteristics that were there. But so did Vespasian and Titus, and we're going to be seeing that Titus is particularly in focus here and in chapter 18. But the third thing that we saw is that the book of Revelation moves fluidly. When it speaks of the beast, it'll, it'll sometimes speak of the demon, and then it moves straight over into talking to a man, and then it talks about the empire. And every school of eschatology has recognized this fluid movement between the corporate and the leader of the corporate, the, 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 the individual. And the reason they can move between these is because the demon speaks through the emperor. He speaks through and controls through the empire. Well, the next phrase says, having seven heads and ten horns. We previously saw the seven heads were the seven demon-controlled emperors from Julius Caesar to Vespasian. The ten horns were the ten demons who ruled the ten, ten provinces of Rome when the empire fell apart. Uh, basically, they possessed the ten provincial kings. Now, according to the book of Daniel, these ten demons had already been at work previous to this time, and we looked at that work in chapter 13, but here they've lost their crowns. They had crowns in chapter 13. Here they have no crowns. They are waiting for the kingdom to be restored, and it helps us in terms of the timing of what exactly is going on here. This is when the empire fell apart. They're waiting for it to be reestablished under Vespasian and Titus. Now, verse 8 clarifies the time period. Uh, when I preached on the beast in chapter 13, we looked at each phrase here, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go into perdition. Under Nero and the previous emperors, the beast was. Okay, in other words, he was still ruling, and it was in the past tense. He possessed Nero, but we saw that he was cast into the abyss the moment that Nero was killed. And so the next phrase says, And is not. For a year and a half, the beast was not able. He was not in this world. 
He was bound in the abyss. In fact, he no longer had an empire. So all three things that were called the beast, the demon, the emperor, Nero, and the empire itself no longer existed. So the present tense is not, I believe, pinpoints the timing of these events to some time between July of AD 68 and December of 69. Well, that makes sense of the next phrase, which says, and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go into perdition. So he's released from the abyss in AD 70, uh, excuse me, in AD 69, um, uh, midway, right, right in July. Uh, period. He's released, and you see the immediate change in the characteristics of Vespasian and Titus, whom he possessed. Instantly, they were different men. Uh, you see the uh, miracles and other things that happened to them. But then he's sent to perdition in AD 70, and we saw from various passages that God really does this at various times in history. He will um, release demons from the pit to bring infliction of his judgments upon a nation, and then he will bind them in the pit. Well, the second half of verse 8 says, Those who dwell upon the earth will be amazed, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and will be present. And there was a ton of things to be amazed about during this period. All you have to do is look at the miracles that were performed by Nero, Vespasian, and Titus, and they were amazing. Actually, I would say they were astounding. Incredible miracles. We looked at those miracles before. But the death of the empire was also amazing. Uh, many Romans had thought that Rome would last forever. In fact, they called their capital city the Eternal City. Well, it wasn't so eternal, but that's what they called it, the Eternal City. So when it was overrun by revolutionary forces, and when the empire disintegrated overnight after the death of Nero, the Romans were stunned. They were not prepared for this. This was unthinkable. They thought that their statist party would last forever. So they were not prepared for the civil war and the utter chaos that the whole empire was plunged into. Empires are not invincible. We need to realize that. We cannot even count on America lasting forever. Sometimes we act like, oh, no worries, it will last forever. That is to divinize the state. But after millions had died in the year and a half that followed throughout Rome, they were so thoroughly hopeless that when Vespasian succeeded in pulling the empire back together again, they were once again amazed. So the last uh, three words of verse 8 seem to indicate that the amazement also includes their amazement that Rome is restored, that it's revived. By the end of the Civil War, the restoration of Rome seemed impossible. Josephus speaks of how utterly unexpected the revival of Rome uh, was, and so there were a lot of pagans that were amazed, but the word here is gase for earth. It's the land of Israel, so the special focus is that Israel was amazed. You see, Israel was amazed that they won the war against Rome so easily. Rome left. The, all, all, the empire was disintegrating, and they misinterpreted that to mean God's on our side, we are invincible, and uh, they were moving forward, so they're amazed. And then a year and a half later, they're amazed that Rome gets restored uh, completely uh, and comes back to fight against them. Now this verse implies that Christians were not, or at least they should not, be amazed. Uh, I find that interesting. Note that the only ones amazed here are those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Christians were not taken by surprise. 
they had a good theology of total depravity, so they're not surprised by conspiracies and persecutions and uh, infighting that conspiracies have with each other. They know that there's a theology of demons behind men and together with depravity, what else would you expect? But neither were Christians surprised when there was an overthrow of the empire. God can raise up, he can cast down empires anytime. In fact, he could have permanently removed Rome. Uh, he had prophesied that that would not be the case, but he could have. And because they were not surprised, they were able to weather the storms. Well, in the same way, we need not be surprised by even the most astonishing events that might happen uh, to America, and it's for the same reason. If we end up this week in a world war, uh, we should not be surprised. Not that I'm saying I expect it, but we should not be surprised if it happens. If America underwent a third great awakening and got converted and God's blessing rests upon, we should not be surprised by that either. If the United Nations took over America, we should not be surprised. In other words, we are in such rebellion against God that the first and the third options that I presented before you are perfectly just. God could bring those very, very easily, and yet God says that uh, he can convert a nation overnight if it is his will. He could bring a third great awakening if the church, if he would give the faith uh, to the church to pray and to humble themselves. So what God calls us to do in Psalm 37 is no matter what the future may hold, he says, dwell in the land, do good, feast on his faithfulness. He's telling us it does not matter. You don't need to second guess the future. You can dwell in the land. You can continue to take dominion, do good, and feast on his faithfulness. Okay, enough by way of review. Now in verses 9 through 18, we've got the angel's interpretation of the vision. And verse 9 begins by pointing to the fact that Christians must put on their thinking caps if they are going to face, navigate the waters, the troubled waters that are ahead. This is not a time to be spoon-fed. It is a time for mature thinking, disciplined thinking, spirit-led thinking. And so he says, here is the mind that has wisdom. Where do we get wisdom from? Well, we get it from the Scriptures. But it takes hard work digging into the Scriptures. And he says we need in Proverbs to dig for wisdom as if we were digging for diamonds and silver and for gold. And so it's my wish that every one of us would have a mind of wisdom. Uh, the church of all places should be the place where there is both meat and milk dished out. And in this church, we try to have milk and meat in every service. The angel then goes on to refer to two things that the heads of the beast are identified with. Both of those are just different ways of describing the same thing. It's not like there's a symbol that has two meanings. Uh, it's two ways of describing the one meaning, the exact same thing and that is the seat of rule in Rome. The angel says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now for first century readers, they would have instantly known exactly what he is talking about. If you take a look in your bulletin uh, inserts, um, I've put a picture of a very common coin. There's other coins like this that uh, people would have had in their pockets, they would have seen, uh, and it's a woman sitting on the seven hills of Rome. And uh, back then, any of them would have known uh, even the names of the seven hills. We know the names of the seven hills of Rome to this day. Uh, and because of the literature of the day, 
Uh, this would have been very familiar as well, but Rome was called the city of the seven mountains by Virgil, Marshall, Cicero, and others. I think it's a slam dunk that it has to be Rome. There are some uh, preterist article, uh, uh, authors who think it's seven hills in Jerusalem, but I think it has to be Rome. And by the way, uh, there has been always symbols of conspiracy, so to speak, demonic uh, conspiracy on um, the money of various empires. If you pull out a dollar bill, just examine it. You'll see some pretty weird symbols on there, symbols of conspiracy that have happened long ago in our nation. Uh, anyway, if you take a look at the picture of the coin in your outlines, I want to point out that the Romans said that the woman sitting on the seven hills or the seven mountains was a goddess. Now, we would call her a demon, but they called her a goddess. So this is another hint that just as the beast was a demon, just as the ten horns were demons, this woman is a demon. Uh, he is, he's basically saying the Jewish leadership was controlled by a demon. And so primarily it's a demon. Secondarily, it refers to the, the, the leaders in the city that she controls. Now in previous sermons, we've already looked at numerous proofs uh, that the harlot... Uh, was a symbol not just of a demon but of the leadership of Jerusalem and so the shocking message is that the goddess Roma was controlling the Sadducees and the Sadducees were controlling Rome. Now if you do a study in the Bible about demons behind rulers you will often see that demons congregate behind where the money is um, and I can show you at some point in Isaiah and Ezekiel and other places where that is the case and either way you take it, and by the way, the money here, the Sadducees, they were the international bankers. So there's demonic that is controlling that, and they then are controlling the empire. But first century Jews who would have seen this money would have um, immediately caught the implication the Sadducees were demonic, just as Jesus said that they were. They were controlled by this goddess, Roma. Now the main point that I wanted to bring up here though is that the seven heads are tied to the seven mountains in Rome. That is the place of rule. John doesn't want us to miss the fact that though the woman is Jerusalem and we gave many, many proofs of that identity, the seven hills are the seat of power in Rome. So money controls power back then just like it does now. The text goes on to say they are also seven kings. That's just another way of saying exactly the same thing. The seven heads are the emperors of, of Rome. Seven hills were put on the coins of the emperors to represent those same emperors all the way up through Vespasian. And I probably should have put a picture of the reverse of the coin there. But then comes the mysterious description of the seven heads and the ten horns. And because I dealt with these verses under chapter 13, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, and this is, should be no surprise to you, Verse 10 goes on to say, five have fallen, one is, the other has not, yet, has not come yet, and whenever he comes, he must continue a short time. Now, it's really rather simple. While John was writing, and this is not the present tense within the vision, but the present tense while the angel is describing the vision. In other words, it's the present tense while John is writing. So while John was writing, five emperors had already fallen. The first emperor was Julius Caesar. Next four were Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. Uh, John received his visions in early AD 66, and everybody agrees Nero was on the throne in AD 66. So Nero is the sixth head. 
So the text says one is, present tense, that's Nero. The next phrase says the other has not yet come. That refers to Vespasian. Now some say, like Gentry, um, that this is Galba, but Galba never ruled over the empire. We've got to interpret this passage consistently with chapter 13. The empire fell apart in AD 68 with the death of Nero, and chapter 13 spoke of that as the beast having a fatal wound to his head, the head being Nero, and then later reviving. So the beast was dead during those one and a half years. It only revived under Vespasian. You can't have an emperor over a non-empire. So this verse is only counting what the Romans considered to be the true emperors of Rome. The next clause says, and whenever he comes, he must continue a short time. Now those who take the heads as kingdoms rather than as kings like I do, they struggle with that little phrase, a short time. Uh, it is a, a major headache for them, and both pre-mills and awmills tend to take it as kingdoms in order to get it all the way up to the second coming in, in the future. Now, if instead of kings, as I see it, there are eight kingdoms being mentioned in these verses, then the sixth kingdom would be Rome because it's using the present tense when John is writing. They then place the eighth kingdom at the time that Christ comes back. So what do you do with the seventh kingdom? Uh, it's a long time. I don't think it makes any sense because Rome died. It ended in the fifth century. And so what kingdom endures for 1,500 years? And 1,500 years isn't, uh, isn't a short time anyway. Well, William Hendrickson tries to solve the problem by saying that the seventh head is unique. It's not one kingdom, it's many kingdoms. He says it represents, quote, all anti-Christian governments between the fall of Rome and the final empire of Antichrist. Well, the problem with that it was, is it would make the seventh head totally different character in nature than the first five heads or the eighth head. That didn't make any sense, and it still messes up on being a short time. Mackenzie says, to try to make the short reign of the seventh king into the very long reign of a number of kingdoms shows the desperate extremes to which some will go to escape the time frame Revelation clearly gives us. And that time frame we've been seeing is first century A.D. So what is meant by the short time? There are three possibilities. It could refer to the fact that Vespasian continued to rule even after the eighth head, which is his son Titus, was also reigning. They were both declared emperor at the same time. Everybody realizes, recognizes that they had a co-regency. But what was happening is that uh, very, very quickly, um, Vespasian started having less and less power and doing less and less things until finally, uh, toward the latter part of his reign, we don't hear anything about Vespasian. All that he was involved in was his parties and orgies, and it was Titus who was ruling. And so on this first interpretation, they say, continues what? Continues to reign? Okay, if it's continuing to reign for a short time, he continues to reign for a short time into, into Titus's reign. Now, that's not my view, but it is possible. Now, if continued does not refer to the reign of Vespasian, but rather the fact he will continue to live into his eighth, uh, the eighth king's uh, reign of power, 
then this is a remarkable thing that is worth mentioning, and it ties in with the previous kings falling, meaning that they died before the next head came to rule. Well, that didn't happen with Vespasian and Titus. Vespasian continued to live even after the eighth king came into power. So it's a slightly stronger interpretation. Um, the third interpretation is that Vespasian had to continue in his role as general for a short period after being declared general and before he could sit on the throne in Rome. And I think that definitely fits the evidence. He was declared emperor in Palestine on July 1 of 69. And six months later, on December 20, Vitellius was finally defeated. And then the next day, December 21, he was declared to be emperor by the Senate. Now, during that six-month period, he wasn't ruling as emperor. He was fighting all of the other generals in this huge civil war, uh, trying to gain the throne in, in, in Rome. So he had to, on this interpretation, he has to continue in his role as general before he sits on his throne, even though he's been declared. And so I think everybody would recognize six months is definitely a short time. Uh, and that's the way I tentatively take it. But any of those three interpretations fits the evidence. Now, verse 11 perfectly fits the evidence of that time period. If you read the commentators, wow, a lot of them scratch their head and wonder what on earth is going on with, uh, with this verse. But if we keep in mind that the beast is a demon who comes up out of the abyss, he is also a king and the empire that the demon speaks through, then it all falls together. And I wish you could read Greek because you can sort of in the Greek see this, this transition because it goes from neuter to masculine and there's different genders that nouns have. So one commentator says, and the beast, neuter, that was and is not, he himself is also an eighth masculine and is of the seven. We may note that eighth refers to king in verse 10 being masculine gender. Now without getting technical, it simply means that the demon beast was previously present in Rome, but at the time specified here in AD 68 to 69, he is not. In other words, he's temporarily bound in the pit. Yet this demon beast is also the eighth emperor because he possesses the eighth emperor. He's the one speaking through that eighth emperor. So unlike Mackenzie, who sees a different demon for each of the heads of the beast, this verse indicates that it's the same demon that possessed the eighth emperor, who is also of the seven. I believe it's the same demon who possessed all seven emperors. And this demon's destiny was not victory, but perdition, hell. Though he's a powerful past, he has no future. So again, what's going on here is he is saying there are limits even to demonic conspiracies. And in the remaining verses, we see that the conspiracy that Satan has tried to use among the nations to cast off the bonds of Christ is not so invincible after all. Verse 12 shows that God can take power away from demons and men anytime he wants to. And when conspiracies work, it's only because God wants them to work, perhaps for discipline or some other reason. Verse 12 says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, or as I translate it, in one hour. There's no four in the, in the Greek. Unlike chapter 13, where each horn had a crown, these horns are uncrowned. They're the same demons who previously had authority under each emperor, 
but they've now lost control. So even demonic conspiracies are not invincible. The demons lost their crowns. They're waiting for the empire to be restored. So whether you think of the horns as demons or the kings whom those demons possessed, they represent the ten provinces of Rome that are hoping for restored power. Mackenzie says, thus the ten horns in this chapter do not have crowns and probably represent the allied authorities and client kings that assisted Titus in his destruction of the Jewish nation. Uh, Wellesley's book, The Year of the Four Emperors, documents the plans that the, they had a, a short meeting, the plans that these ten kings made with Titus uh, in Beirut in AD 69. Was it an hour long? I, we are not told but I'll describe that meeting in a couple of minutes, and a one-hour meeting makes sense. So there were ten kings over ten provinces in Rome at this time, and I think that helps to date it as well. There are a number of, uh, 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 the number of provinces ranged widely over Rome's entire history, and so this narrows things down to this time period when there really were uh, ten provinces who were so fed up with the civil war that they gathered together for a meeting with Titus and they conspired to overthrow the one that the Senate wanted to make as king. So it was a conspiracy. In fact, Vitellius treats it as treason. And I don't see any reason why we can't take it literally that this decision was made in one hour. Then verse 13 describes this conspiracy that Titus and the ten had against Vitellius. Very few followed Vitellius. Uh, he did not have the empire. He had the city, but he did not have the empire. Well, these kings conspired against the Senate-approved king, so it's Titus's conspiracy against Vitellius's conspiracy. There's at least three conspiracies going on in this, in this chapter. So verse 13 says, These are of one mind and give their power and authority to the beast. Now Tacitus documents that this meeting went quite well, and as to the power that they gave, Vespasian simply would not have been able to get onto the throne without the power of those ten kings and without the help of his son Titus. Wellesley documents the enormous power of all the nations that came together behind Titus and um, why do conspiracies of such magnitude why are they successful? And I would say, well, the Bible and, and Revelation says you've got to take into account that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and forces of darkness. Uh, there is uh, a lot going on behind the scenes that we must contend with. And that's why there is such hostility to Christ and to Christians in this in next verse. When you are so nice to authorities, why are they sometimes mean-spirited and not nice to you well again it's because we're wrestling with forces of darkness that stand behind them we're not wrestling with flesh and blood verse 14 says they will make war with the lamb now here's the encouraging part and the lamb will conquer them because he is lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful now this echoes the language of psalm 2 which says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Okay? This is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy against Christ. And just as Psalm 2 promises that the Messiah will win uh, against conspirators, this says that the Lamb will win. Why? 
Well, Psalm 2 promises that with his ascension, he will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. Sound like Matthew 28? It sure does. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Now, usually conspiracies are fomented in the name of liberty for the people, but almost always they bring about bondage and murder. And Titus continued the policies of Nero before him by persecuting Christians. And his brother Domitian continued the policies of persecution after Titus. Demonic states will always persecute Christians. Why? Because demons hate Christians. Uh, people are mystified as to why persecution comes along, you know, in various states as it becomes more and more centralized. But they shouldn't be mystified. There are demons behind these organizations, and it's inevitable we will receive persecution unless the Lord stops the demons, converts the nation, binds the demons in some way. Now, this verse also says that his people are called and chosen and faithful. Conspiracies do not happen because God has forgotten his people. The very reverse is stated right here. No, we are loved by him. We are called by him. We're chosen by him. And hopefully we will be faithful just like the saints back then were faithful. That's what made the difference and why they were able to win back then. But um, certainly these kings would not be successful ultimately. Christ guarantees in this verse to conquer the empire of Rome, all ten provinces without exception, he promises to do that, and did it happen? Absolutely, yes, it did. Over the next two centuries, uh, it was province after province that became Christianized until finally uh, the emperor himself and the whole empire became a Christian empire. This verse was fulfilled to a T over the next 300 years. Now let me ab address one objection that some have made to my interpretation. Some have said, they have claimed that Titus did not persecute Christians and that he never made a war against Christ and therefore this could not possibly be referring to that time period. But we've already seen in previous sermons, I've given numerous quotes in previous sermons, that Titus did indeed blaspheme against Christ and declare war against Christ in the temple and on his trip back to Rome. And uh, he was very specific in even challenging Christ to a battle. <laughs> he names Jesus. He was definitely demonically inspired against Jesus. And we also looked at um, a documented Christians being tortured to death under his authority. This common assertion that you will read in the literature is absolutely false. It is simply not true. He was a horrible persecutor of the church. And this verse shows that the idea of persecution of Christians was already uppermost in Titus's mind and in the minds of the ten kings during the hour that they got together. The first time that they conspired together, part of that conspiracy was to overthrow Christians. Do we have any hints in history that this happened? Actually, I discovered a little piece, a little fragment of Tacitus, that has survived that records a part of that meeting. And I'm going to read that to you, and I think it illustrates exactly what's going on here. Tacitus was a Roman senator who lived during this time, who wrote a history of this war. And here is the summary of the meeting that Titus had. He said, Titus is said to have first summoned a council and deliberated <coughs> whether or not he should destroy such a mighty temple. 
For some thought that a consecrated shrine, which was famous beyond all other works of men, ought not to be raised to the ground. Their argument was that to preserve it would bear witness to the moderation of Rome, while its destruction would forever brand her as cruel. Others, however, including Titus himself, opposed this view and said that the destruction of the temple was a prime necessity, now get this next phrase, was a prime necessity in order to wipe out more completely the religion of the Jews and the Christians. For they urged that these religions, although hostile to each other, nevertheless sprang from the same sources. The Christians had grown out of the Jews. If the root were destroyed, the stock would easily perish. So this was clearly, right from the very beginning of that conspiracy, it was a conspiracy against Christ and Christians. It was behind closed doors. It was premeditated genocide. Well, Peter Hammond has documented the premeditated genocides in Rwanda and in many other countries that was supported by and covered up by the United Nations. It's demonic. It's horrible. Demons continue to work today in the same way they worked back then. We should not be surprised. And it is absolutely naive for Christians to trust in the United Nations, as so many people do, thinking it could solve some of the international problems. Uh, we, we should not be surprised by the atrocities that have happened under communism and uh, other regimes over the last uh, 100 years. Demons have a long history of doing such things, and yet most seminaries, I'm not exaggerating, most seminaries in this country have promoted Ronald Sider and his Christian socialism, and have thought Christian socialism is a good thing. The United Nations is a good thing. Having the state do charity and all of these other things is a good thing, which makes the state into a monstrously huge state. It is scandalous that Christians would believe this. But verse 15 gives yet another weakness inherent in all one-world governments. Verse 15 says that they are made up of not-so-united nationalities. Then he says to me, the waters that you saw where the whore sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Is it a good thing to have different uh, ethnicities and cultures and languages? Yes, it is a fantastic thing. Now, while ethnic differences can sometimes be used to promote uh, racism, prejudice against others, God sometimes uses these differences amongst ethnicities to protect his people and to promote uh, his purposes. Ever since the Tower of Babel, these natural differences in mankind have hampered and frustrated tyrants. Why? Well, it's because citizens they are much more loyal to their own ethnicity than they will be to the one world government. That's a good thing. They're much more loyal and uh, interested in their own customs than in the customs that have been posed upon them. They like their own language more than the language that's imposed upon them. They like their own food better. Okay, God made it as a way of keeping the Tower of Babel from succeeding. But ethnic preferences is a far cry from saying it is a sin to intermarry. Now, some of you have been following the recent debates on Facebook on Peter Hammond's view that uh, inter-ethnic marriage is a sin, and uh, I strongly disagree with Peter and think that his position is actually a slander against Moses. You know Moses married an Ethiopian uh, uh, a woman. But I'm not about to treat 
Peter as an unbeliever, as Joel McDermott and uh, Bojidar Marinov uh, insist that we must. I don't think they have the authority to act as a church court. And uh, they have been doing exactly that on Facebook or to give moral commands to join the boycott lest we ourselves be shunned. I see Peter as a man of God who has major blind spots in his life. And this is all public now, so there's no reason I should not talk about this publicly. Some of you have been reading uh, these posts, and I think as a pastor I absolutely need to address this. All you need to do, the same exact blind spots have been in a lot of the reformers. Just take one of the reformers, take Martin Luther, and go to the Facebook and put Martin Luther's name in place of Peter Hammond, and you will see that Martin Luther would be excommunicated by this Facebook because his position was far, far worse than Peter's. Uh, Peter is really not a racist. He's got great friends uh, who are, are black. He's got intermarried, uh, inter-ethnically married people who work with him, and he works in their churches. But he does think, personally, that it is a sin. So I've spoken to Peter about his error, and I'm not about to break uh, fellowship with Peter simply because of cyber bullies who insist to command me to do so on the web. And I know some of you are interacting with this, and this would be great discussion at the tables. Uh, for example, uh, they, want, um, they want me to boycott uh, the Mars Conference, and the Mars Conference is put on by some sweet elder, elderly gentlemen who don't have a racist bone in their bodies, but they are not about to um, uh, break fellowship with Peter. So since they, can't, they won't break fellowship with Peter, these guys are going to be excommunicated, and anybody who goes to the conference is going to be shunned as well. A third-degree separation, it's wrong. It's wrong. I know I'm going down a side, a side table, but this is something that really does need to be addressed. And I would urge you to keep this in mind. There are errors on both sides of this debate, and there are wonderful things on both sides of this debate. They are people that we love on both sides of this debate, and I think there's just been uh, too much error uh, that's been going on. A lot of... Um, uh, a lot of uh, absolutely false statements that are being made, at least by some of, of the followers. Okay, enough on, on uh, the, the rabbit trail. I do think that uh, ethnic intermarriage wonderfully illustrates the grace of Christ, the purposes of Christ. All you have to do is look at the genealogy of Jesus, and you'll see he does not, as kinists claim, have pure blood, whatever pure blood is. He's got Gentiles in his genealogy, and that is quite clear. So... Uh, kinism is an error. I don't think Peter is a kinist. Don't know that for sure. But uh, God values unity. He values diversity. He values both. So inter-ethnic marriage is a testimony to God's grace. I think it's an incredible testimony to God's grace where there's people who aren't inter-ethnically married, but they're united in Christ and love one another in the church. Both are okay. Well, enough on that. The key point here is that God uses national, ethnic, and language differences as a frustration to centralizing tyrants. It can be a wonderful thing. And certainly that was the case with Israel, which is the next point. It was nationalism that made the hot-headed zealots fight Rome and force Rome to roar, much to the chagrin of the Sadducees who profited from Rome's rule. They were conspirators who manipulated Rome. But I want you to look at how Rome turned on Israel in verse 16. 
And the ten horns that you saw, also the beast, these will hate the whore and will lay her waste and strip her and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now this is a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of Jerusalem and its temple. Now Tacitus spoke of the hatred that these allied forces had for Israel. And you might wonder, why would they be so upset? Why would they be so spiteful and hateful to these Jews? Well, there were probably a number of reasons. First of all, we've seen that there was a lot of demons, especially from earlier chapters. There was a lot of demons behind these armies. And anywhere you have the demonic going, you're going to have things like um, racism and anti-Semitism and other things like that. So that's a part of the explanation. Um, but Tacitus mentions historical rivalries, the kind of rivalries, you know, the what are the, the rivalries, the McCoys and the, yes, those. <laughs> and we should always be resistant to rivalries. There's something going on in the heart that is sinful, that is wrong about that. Um, historians tell us that the Gentiles' nations envied Jerusalem's wealth. Envy is not a good thing. They envied her tax advantages that no other nation got. They envied the fact that Israel got to impose their own laws rather than Roman laws. They envied the fact that Israel had more influence over the emperors than any other nationality had. They were angered by the racism of some of the Jews. The racism went both directions. Um, and like modern third world countries, they were extremely resentful of the manipulation and control that the Sadducean international bankers had after they loaned the country's money and then they had expectations on those countries. It didn't, you know, the, what does the scripture say? The, the borrower is slave to the lender. It didn't feel good. So that could have contributed to some of the anger as well. Perhaps the freshest thing in their memory that would have made them angry was that the zealots had just recently almost annihilated an entire legion of the empire's soldiers under Cestius. And when it speaks of stripping her, they did indeed strip her of her wealth. All the treasures of Jerusalem and the temple were stripped away from her. And you can see some of those temple treasures being hauled away in the Arch of Titus. I've given just a little section of that Arch of Titus in your outlines. But... Um, all of this was fulfilled. Sadducees had made, according to Christ, had made the temple into a den of robbers. So God has the Romans rob the robbers. Basically, that's what was going on. And by the way, the Sadducees themselves were wiped out. We don't hear anything more about the Sadducees after that war. The Pharisees continued on, and that's what uh, the um, modern rabbinic Talmudism uh, preserves. But note that this was all divinely planned and executed. Though every one of these soldiers thought that they were exercising their own free will and their own desires, and there's a sense in which they were, verse 17 says, because God put it into their hearts to perform his purpose, even to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Now that's astonishing. God controls even hearts. He turns the heart of a king, whichever way he wills, what Proverbs says. He controls things like pillaging and revolutions and dictatorships, and yet he is not the author of sin. So he's sovereign over those sins, yet the sinners alone are guilty for the sins that they want to do. They're not forced to do them. They're not robots. 
And thus, Psalm 105.17 says that God sent Joseph to Egypt, while Genesis said that his wicked brothers sent him to Egypt. Both are true. God is sovereign, but men are still responsible for their actions. And that's why Joseph told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. Well, in the same way, God was going to bring good out of the evil that Rome and Israel were engaged in. And not one single prophesied item about Jerusalem's demise was left unfulfilled. It says that God put it into their hearts to do these things until the words of God should be fulfilled. Now, how does he do this? I believe he does it through secondary means. He allows the demons to move them. Even demons have to do God's will. Okay? They can only do God's will. There is nothing outside of God's sovereign control. I think we should take comfort in that. This is why we say conspiracies are not something to get depressed over. Conspiracies come because of God's will and conspiracies fail because of God's will. And they do fail. They have failed numerous times in history. God alone is sovereign. And this verse powerfully points to that sovereignty. And that despite the fact that the last verse says that Jerusalem controlled the puppet strings of the Roman Empire. We've already seen the ways that the Sadducees controlled uh, Rome, but it's repeated here for effect. Now, the woman whom you saw is the great city that holds rulership over the kings of the earth. Now, the word earth here is gase, which we've been seeing in Revelation as a reference to the land of Israel. So even though Rome itself, the empire, was controlled in many ways by them, uh, here he's focusing on the fact that all of these kings had been bought. They were controlled by the Sadducees. And you don't have to do much reading in history to see that these Sadducees had hundreds of millions of dollars of bribes that they uh, gave to people. They had plenty of money to go around and to control. And so um, I think money controlled politics back then just like it tends to control politics today. There's an interesting new book out by Peter Schweitzer called Secret Empires, how the American political class hides corruption and enriches family and friends. Now, he alleges that China has bribed uh, people like Biden and McConnell and many other senators and even organizations and think tanks like Heritage Foundation with hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, he names names. He documents exactly where the money flowed. It's uh, kind of a fascinating. I haven't evaluated the whole thing yet, but uh, there's a number of uh, people who have reviewed it who have said, wow, this is really embarrassing for American politics. He who has the money seems to rule the world to some degree. Well, that was true of the Sadducees of Jerusalem who had an individual net worth that was just staggering. According to some experts, it was greater than anyone else's net worth that we know of. Well, there's the fable of Midas, who maybe would have been much more. But um, they had plenty of money to throw around. I've included in your outline a picture of just one section of the Copper Scroll, which was uh, one of the secretly coded books that shows where the Sadducees hid all of their treasures. They buried their treasures. Scholars say that there are 64 locations just on that one document, 63 of which have vast treasures of gold and silver. For example, one location has 868,000 troy ounces of gold. And people have said that the treasures are far greater 
than any other that we have seen in history. But based on history, there was a lot more money going around than what was even in these uh, scrolls here. These guys were fabulously rich. That's why they were international bankers. They were not bankers because they needed more money. They were bankers because they wanted to control the empire. So as I mentioned before, they filled the emperor's cabinet with Jewish advisors, put conditions on loans that they had made. Nero actually converted to Judaism. Maybe it was because of money too. We don't know all of the details on that. Uh, these guys hired assassins to destroy people who were slow to cooperate. Through sex and through other means, they at least controlled the Roman kings that were in the land of Palestine, but they also controlled kings throughout the empire, as we'll see in chapter 18. Eventually, those kings had enough. They were disgusted. They were upset. And um, the conspiracy all fell apart. The conspirators were crushed by another conspiracy of the ten horns and Titus. And so this chapter illustrates three competing conspiracies. And it makes us realize that even modern conspiracies can sometimes undo other conspiracies. It's basically humanism fights against humanism. So that's the story of this chapter. And if you've been encouraged by this chapter not to get paralyzed, not to feel helpless because of the conspiracies of our day, and if you want more interesting reading, I would encourage you to pick up, I think we got a couple copies in the library, uh, pick up a, couple, uh, a, co a copy of this uh, book uh, by Gary North, Conspiracy, A Biblical View. It'll give you plenty more reasons to be encouraged. God is working out his purposes, not in spite of the Illuminati, but he is working out his purposes through the Illuminati, the Freemasons, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, Skull and Bones, Bohemians, and other organizations that have been trying to enslave the world. They're tools of God's judgment, in my view. And if you study the history of those organizations, you will discover they have had many frustrations, many setbacks, infighting between some of the different organizations, along with amazing successes in enslaving countries and enriching themselves as well. But the point is, conspirators are not invincible, even if they succeed in temporarily controlling the world. We should not be naive about the power that conspiracies have had in the past in controlling United States of America, and it appears very strongly, it seems to be out there in the open, that they are controlling America completely today. But neither should we treat them as all-powerful. Only Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Rest in that truth. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you have given all authority to Christ in heaven and on earth. Father, we are grateful that we need not fear, that we can be bold in Christ, realizing that Christ is destined to conquer all of the nations of the world, that one day the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and this world will be filled with nations that do all that you have commanded, that fulfill your word. We long for that day, and I pray that you would help uh, our actions, feeble as they may be, to be multiplied just as you multiplied the loaves and the fishes, that you would multiply our efforts, that you would bring a harvest to your glory. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.